Pete Amorosi. Coach, how are you? It worked on the first shot, man. This is good. This is great. <laughs> All right. So I, I want to start this one off uh, a little differently. First, I'll give a quick introduction of who you are. So Pete Amorosi is one of the, I'd say, the few St. Joseph by the Sea guys that I never actually coached hands-on in high school football. But you came with a crew of kids to train with me after your college, after your high school career was done. I had coached your brother for I think it was a year. He had trained with me, and then you came into the group. You went on to Fairleigh Dickinson as a two-sport athlete. Uh, you were also athlete of the year. But none of that is important right now because my intro, intro question to you is, if this was Game of Thrones, if advanced training was Game of Thrones, what character do you think you'd be? So originally I thought I would be Peter Baelish. Uh, but then you look at the, the people that make up our group, and you got guys like Uske and, and Trunzo. And for the listeners out there that, saw, that heard Trunzo's podcast, uh, he, he fits the bill to be Peter Baelish more than I do. So with that being said, I kind of thought about this for a while. Um, and I think I would have to pick Braun. And the reason being is that Braun is one of the best um, swordsmen, but no one puts him on the top category. I mean, if you ask probably 100 people, they wouldn't say Braun is number one. But he's one of the guys that no one will mess with. And at the end of the show, if uh, you know, spoiler alert, Braun makes his way to the to, – to, I don't want to ruin the show for anyone, but at the end of the show, he makes him to, his way to the final table. So the guy's a smart man. He's one of the best people in, in the realm, um, and, and he figured out how to get to the end without uh, being the top dog where people would say, you know, he's, he's always been the best. So I, I kind of think I fit that bill the most. It's, it's interesting that you say that for two reasons. One, Braun is my favorite character, has always been my favorite character on the show. Like if I had a vote for a person to be my uh, my protector or my buddy, it'd be Braun. So yep. I'm, you might yep, be the same. first person I've heard say that. Uh, <laughs> the second thing I was thinking through this, and it was kind of going to be my setup for the for the rest of this discussion, podcast, whatever you want to call it, was I'd always thought of you as like uh, Varys, Lord Varys, for the reason of you always seem to want what's right. You have an insane amount of knowledge. Uh, and like with Varys, he was always trying to do the right thing. And for you, I always think you're trying to do the right thing for advanced training, uh, for St. Peter's High School. You're always doing the right thing, and you got the right connections behind the scene. Now, there are some negatives about Varys from previous shows where you think he's like tricking people. But I think at the end of the day, he was always trying to do what's best for everyone. Yeah, that was actually my second choice. So you're not far off. <laughs> Yeah, with with uh, with Littlefinger, there was always these potential mind games where where Trunzo was coming in, but I don't think Varys was playing those mind games. Correct, correct. All right, so so getting into this, uh, you were always a, a, a cerebral guy. I, I want to talk about now that you're coaching, right? Now that you've been a coach and as a player, what are you seeing as a coach that you didn't realize when you were a player? Um, I think the whole philosophy on coaching, or at least from what I'm saying, is is completely different. When when I was a player, the philosophy was still, um, you know, make practice as hard as possible, get these kids ready to go into war, uh, have long practices, have uh, an insane amount of conditioning at the end of practice, and and it wasn't wrong at the time. It was just the way it was. Um, I mean, as as life goes on and you get more and more research, and there's more research available you start to see things a little bit differently. So I'm not blaming anyone for doing that when, when I was a player. But the whole philosophy 
has changed. And, and now you're seeing more uh, of a short practices, at least from our standpoint, and you're seeing it not just from us, but there's other, uh, there's other places doing this as well. Um, there, there's not as much conditioning, um, especially at St. Peter's uh, where we're coaching. Um, and, and it's just the, the whole philosophy changes. There's so much more research that you could use uh, to better yourselves, that you're not wasting time, you're not wasting movements, you're not doing uh, drills and, and different things at practice that are wasteful. You're really optimizing your time and making sure that everything you do is efficient and, and related to football. So those are the biggest things I see. It's not as much uh, conditioning and running you into the ground and, and you're extremely, extremely exhausted after every practice. That, we're kind of doing away with that logic, um, especially now football is becoming more of a speed game. So that's one of the biggest changes I see. So as a strength coach now and a football coach, but as a strength coach, has it tra- changed the way you've trained, let's say, over the last three to five years? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, well, we might be going into this later, but I have a, a, an injury that, um, that I have to deal with you know, every day of my life. Um, and, and that alone changed the way I train, but we're training our athletes to not get injured. And that's the number one primary concern. And that's first and foremost, because if someone's injured, if we have a player that's injured, it doesn't matter if they could bench 400 pounds, doesn't matter if they could squat 600 pounds or deadlift 600 pounds. It's irrelevant because they're not on the field. So what, what good does that get you? So I, our logic and correct me if I'm wrong, our logic is that we want our players to be healthy first and then strength comes second. And a, a lot of what we do in the weight room is targeted on preventing injury and prehab. Yeah. You know, I was actually having this conversation yesterday with somebody at work. They're asking me, you know, how do you train? What would you say is your training thing? And I said, uh, it's really, it's everything. You know, we're, we're not just working on just power. We're not just working on size, we're working on everything. But, and I gave the big but was, but the primary thing was not getting hurt because it, your life is exactly what you said. If you're hurt, you can't do anything else, and it's just a giant waste of time. So I want to go to the injury that you had. What was it? Uh, what happened? And how are you dealing with it? So my senior year of high school, I was we were benching. It was a few of us. I can't remember the exact details, but we were benching and we were doing heavy weight, which uh, we were doing like one rep maxes, which is right off the bat not the best idea. Um, for those that don't know, when we when we do our bench max, we don't do one rep. We do multiple reps and then calculate our one rep max. So um, there's there's no reason to put your body through that much strain. But with that being said, we were doing one rep maxes, and to get the weight up, I um, we were benching, and I actually drove my heels into the ground and picked my whole back up, my lower back, and basically put my you know pinched my back together. And as a result, as a result with so much strain and the weight that I had on there, I think it was like. Uh, 245 or something like that um as a high school uh senior um i herniated a disc in my back so at the time i didn't know um so with that being said i I hurt myself in the weight room which is what we're trying to prevent this very second at when we're training so i gotta i gotta stop you for a second i know you for nine ten years I didn't know that's how you hurt your back, and I feel embarrassed because that's. I just thought I I knew you hurt your back, but I didn't know the why. And uh, so now I'm even thinking through when we're yelling at kids if they're benching and their butt is coming up off the bench to keep your butt down. I mean, you have a great story for these kids. Right, right, and a herniated disc doesn't go away overnight, so it's not like it's not like you strain your ankle and it's going to be healed. So what? What uh? 
what have you done? Like, how did you change your training after that happened? So I, I played a full baseball season with it, and it was just a nagging injury. And it's not – here's the thing. Mine's a unique situation because my herniated disc is not terribly bad. It's something that someone that uh, has a normal life, and when I say normal, I'm saying sits down, goes to work, comes home, could probably deal with. And, and, but I don't like nagging pain. If I'm going to have nagging pain, I'm going to figure out how to get rid of it um, because I don't want my body to be, to be weak and prone to more, um, to more injury. Um, so essentially what I've been, what I was doing was I played through a baseball season. Then I started training with you and it just so happens that your style of training fit my injury just right off the bat. A lot of core training, uh, anti-rotational training, um, a lot of strengthening of the lower back and and the hamstrings, um, with the unilateral leg movements that we do. And it all worked out without me even knowing it because I wasn't knowledgeable enough to even realize what, what I was doing at that time. I was 17 years old and I really didn't have much knowledge in the strength, uh, area. And all that was, was tremendously helping my back. So that it was, it was just perfect timing in, in, in terms of to get me back on the field. So you know me now for almost 10 years and here's something you probably didn't know about me. And this was going back to this Lord Veris comment, uh, and it, like being like that secret advisor and you didn't know it. You were a 17, 18 year old kid and we had you deadlifting and you're like, this hurts my back. And I, at the time I just essentially had a cookie cutter program for everybody. We had cookie cutter PowerPoints for everybody. And uh, you being a cerebral kid who would always question things that were going on and not, you weren't questioning me. You just wanted to learn. It made me go back and reflect and it made me try and tailor programs around the current, I'll say health level of the person that I was training. And I, I you know, you learn, I was, I was a dumb younger coach at that point, but because of you, it's really why we've incorporated so much more prehab, uh, changed PowerPoint structure for certain people that may have injuries, changed certain workouts for people with injuries, tailored it to them. So I'm sure you didn't know that, but you, you made a giant impact on the way I've trained people over the last 10 years. Yeah, I mean that, that that's awesome, and and you only learn by by the information that's in front of you. So, and I'm sure we're still learning as French coaches today. I'm sure you're seeing things in the weight room today that's making you alter your program, and that's that's the beauty of being a, a strength coach and being hands on, and uh, that's that's great to hear. It, it's interesting because I'd say you know if I think about like I, I I'll use the word I don't, have a, I don't have a better word I would say there's guys that you train that sometimes intimidate you. And for me, the, the times I get intimidated is never physically. It's usually mentally. Of, am I doing the right thing? Am I doing the right thing by this kid? Uh, if this kid's asking me this question, maybe I'm doing something wrong. You'd be up there. Uh, and at least in that, you're in that top five, maybe that top three, maybe that top two. A lot of the guys we train, they question things, but usually just to, to bother me, like a, like a Torres tries to get in my head. or right, right, you know, right. Some guys just want to be meatheads, but there's guys like you or a, a Rob Mulligan that literally wanted to know the why. Uh, even a, a Joe Moresco, he, he wants to know the why just to keep learning the why, and it always challenges me to get better. And sometimes coaches say, shut up, just listen to what I'm saying, do what I tell you to do. But for me, it's always about how can I learn, especially from the cerebral guys who really genuinely want to learn. It's, it's a good way to reflect on what you're doing and make sure that it's, it's a viable program for everybody. So with that, I want to get into overhead squatting. You've said to, to me, and it seems like you're, you're kind of, I'd say, mini obsessed with overhead movements, and it's helped your back. Is that true? Uh, I think it is. Listen, I, 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 do a, I do a ton of overhead movements. I do overhead squats, overhead lunges, single arm, uh, barbell. 
Um, it's one of my favorite movements to do. Um, and I think just the other, a couple of weeks ago, I just, I put a hundred pounds in one arm and did uh, overhead squats with it. And now I'm up to one tens, which is, which is kind of sick for, for my size. Um, and not many people in the gym <laughs> do overhead movements like that. So say you weigh, uh, 240 pounds. Yeah, I think he, I think he, the trends will think I'm a completely different person than I actually am. <laughs> <laughs> what do you weigh? Um, I am about between 185 and 190. And you said you did you did one tens. Yeah, one tens, one arm overhead squat. Wow, that's so, sick. And the reason I've been doing it for a long time. So if if someone does a movement for three, four, five, six years, they're gonna get good at it. I mean, um, and it's not a movement that people pride themselves on. It's not like a guy goes to the gym and he says, "Oh, I benched uh, X amount of pounds." Say no one cares if you go to overhead squat, but to me, it's it, it's such it's a movement that forces you to stabilize your core um and and throughout the whole movement and it's just one movement but i i just i like that one the best so that's why i think i talk about it the most it's just one movement that's that really really forces you to stabilize your core um and i found that if if my back starts hurting and if i ever go through a period of training where i i stop overhead movements for whatever reason and, and stop focusing on core and i start to have a nagging injury um i always go back to the, to the overhead movements and a couple of days later my back stops to hurt uh, stops hurting rather so what do you think is the hardest part of an overhead squat or an overhead lunge? <laughs> for me now, it's it, at this point, it's for me to get the weight up. I mean, uh, <laughs> my sh- I, I'm afraid my shoulder's gonna, you know, the weight's gonna fall to the side. My shoulder's gonna pop out. It's not. I, if, if there was a way for me to get my my you know my overhead press stronger, um, at, at the same rate that I was getting my my the the amount of weight that my back and my core can handle, I wish I could because I could probably do more. So you know you've made it on overhead movements when the hardest part is getting over your head. Correct. And that's a tip of the tip of the hat to you. Uh, and I, I remember a long time ago, you might have still been like maybe a freshman in college. You had said that we should write a manual on overhead movements. And we have quite a few. of them. It's not just the overhead squat. There's a, an overhead lunge forward. There's an overhead reverse lunge. There's an overhead re- forward to reverse lunge. Uh, we've even gotten crazy where we've done like a snatch to an overhead squat or a snatch to an overhead lunge, just a whole bunch of different things. So if, if now that you're a coach, what are you telling kids so that they don't blow their shoulder out as they're pushing this dumbbell over their head? I, I think that the biggest thing is, is steady progression and knowing what you could do. Uh, like me personally, I didn't jump, jump up from 80 pounds to 100 pounds. I would never do that. It's, to me, it's insane. Because you don't know how your body can handle 100 pounds. So you start off with a weight that you can handle. And the next week, you go up maybe five pounds each week. Uh, I mean, there's 52 weeks in the year. You have plenty of time for you to get that weight up. It, there's no reason for you to jump up to a tremendous amount and go from 20, 30 pounds up the, the, week, the next week. So my biggest thing is steady progression. And you'll be able to tell if you can handle heavier weight much quicker um, going up five, five pounds. Whereas if you go up 20 pounds, you might just hurt yourself on the first rep. So quick side note, and then I definitely want to get back into overhead squats or anything. You've trained with some crazy, crazy, crazy people who all they want to do is pump 20 pounds onto their weight every set. How did, in that crazy environment, how did you keep that mindset of being smart uh, and slow and steady progression? Uh, I'm, I'm an analytical guy. So when I look at things, like I'm like, if I go five pounds each week, 
and you have 52 weeks, you could do the math. It's, it's, that's almost, it's close to 300 pounds. You're never going to get five pounds each week. So if you want to go up 20 pounds each week, you're going to eventually hit a barrier. I rather slowly progress upwards and make sure that I do every movement correctly and not get injured. Um, and do it and do everything correct it's tough when the guys around you're trying to jump up 20 pounds and then the next week they're staying stagnant i mean it's tough because these guys always want to chase them more weight but i just i know that over it's not this isn't a one week thing this is a progression over six weeks over um four months over two years it's a progression it's a progression game uh you're not you're not making a huge change overnight so that's i kind of have that mentality and i see that and People get caught up in the moment, and, and everyone does, including myself, and especially with challenges and whatnot. But I, I see it as a long-term game, not, not as a one-night day. How do you not let a guy like a Torres or a Morano get in your head when they're just constantly trying to bump up the weight? Uh, uh, I, I don't know. I, I, I don't put in much uh, – I don't put much to trash talking. I'm not really a trash talker. Uh, even when I was playing, like I, people would trash talk me, uh, receivers would start talking to me and I would just laugh. Like it, it doesn't even phase me because to me, talking doesn't prove anything. It doesn't make you do anything. Uh, the, there's no benefit to talking to someone or saying anything to them besides getting in their own head. Uh, it just literally would fly over my head. I would just do what I had to do. Do you say a, a Morano's trying to get in your head or a Blanco? What do you do? Are you easy? You just phase in it out, or you put your mind at a different place. What do you? How do you get through it? Yeah, I just kind of go blank with them. <laughs> I just let the let their words fly over my head. I don't let it affect me. And and a lot of those guys I know forever, so I, I'm kind of close with them. It's not like it's a brand new guy that's starting to talk crap, and I'm like, who is this guy? You know, uh, like you know, I played college, uh, high school football with uh, with Blanco and Morano. Um, I know Frank for a long time. Um, I, I just kind of like phase it out. And then do my own thing. I, I I try. I stop listening to it. I stop analyzing it. I stop dissecting it. And I'm just like let these let these idiots talk for the time being. <laughs> Is there one guy that has gotten in your head the most? <sighs> um, I, I really don't think so. I'll be honest with you. I really don't think there's that one guy that that has a, is like a thorn in my side. Even like a guy like Ryan Smith. I always gotten along with Ryan Smith. <laughs> uh, a lot of people say like Ryan Smith talks. He talks. I, and I tell people, I'm like, I love Ryan Smith. I, me and Ryan hang out. Like, uh, we, he barely ever trash talks me ever. You know, I, I get along with him for whatever reason. I never really had an issue with Ryan. So even that, even a guy like that, where most people have issues with, uh, I, I never did. And just so, you know, we haven't really talked about Ryan Smith much on this podcast, shockingly, because he was a four, four-time tough man champ. Right. I, I did coach him in high school. He didn't say a word. And then he got into advanced training and became some sort of like mastermind of trash talking to people he didn't know. It almost got dangerous in a few situations where uh, yeah, yeah. Pat, Pat Brennan almost laid him out day one in the gym. So it's, it's shocking that he didn't, didn't, get a, didn't get under your skin either. You know, I, I don't know why. Uh, me and Ryan always got along. Uh, maybe because we played the same position, so we had a lot to talk about in terms of that. Uh, we talked a lot about uh, playing corner and, and, and safety and stuff like that. But I never had an issue with the guy. I mean, he's a great, he's one of the best competitors advanced training has. Um, but he also is one of the people that could talk you off a ledge and make you go crazy. So, <laughs> but, uh, no, I never had an issue with him. I really don't. I, I, I'm not a, I'm not a target for most people. Most people don't say I'm going to get an Amorosi's head today because I think they see it, It's like a fool's errand to them. So why, why waste your time? Why don't you, 
waste your time with someone that's going to talk back and start barking back at you. Now, do you think your the injury that you had in high school made you not be a, a meathead as you trained even early on in college? Oh, 100%. I, I was able to see the benefit of, of training the way we do. And when I say the way we do, for those that are listening, I'm, I'm talking about a ton of, of core stability, anti-rotational movements worked in and a lot of injury prevention movements worked in um, and not 100% focusing on just strength. Um, absolutely. It absolutely helped. It's uh, because it allowed me to see the benefits of what we're doing. If you're a guy that's never been hurt before and we're doing all this injury prevention stuff, you're going to say, what, why are we doing this stuff? I don't need it. But I saw the benefits of it two weeks later, and most people don't get to see it, uh, that my back stopped hurting me and that my, it was, my back was getting stronger. And it, when I was running now, it wasn't nagging my back and it wasn't, uh, you know, it wasn't pulling on my hamstring. Uh, so, I, I, yes, 100% to answer your question. So let's go back to overhead squats. We're going to look at this from you being a coach perspective. What do you see uh, high school kids doing that could potentially get them injured during an overhead squat? What are they doing wrong? Uh, well, the first thing I noticed during the overhead, and you're talking about dumbbell overhead squat or barbell? Yeah, d- dumbbell, dumbbell. The first thing is the weight um, that they're putting over the head is, is too heavy for their shoulders. Um, I see a lot of guys where the weight's starting to go uh, outside of their cylinder, so outside of their shoulder frame. And, um, that's when you see that I have this sick fear that someone's going to, the weight's going to fall to the side of them and their shoulders is going to rip. And that's to me, there's no reason to do an overhead squat movement. If you're going to hurt your shoulder, it's not, they're not even close together. Um, so that's the biggest thing I see. Um, I rarely see people put enough weight over their head where they're going to fall over or topple over from doing like a squat or a lunge overhead. So I really think it's just the shoulder. Yeah, I, I have that fear too. It's kind of and, and look, we uh, I am a super safe, no risk guy, but the overhead squats is, is usually I'd say one of the riskiest moves that we do. Yep. And and things that I that I've seen, uh, if we're talking about a dumbbell, people will pick up the dumbbell over their head in any horrible form or fashion that Correct. they want. Yep. And if we were teaching a dumbbell military press, we would always have them put the dumbbells in a neutral grip position. That's where you're facing your thumbs or your palms facing into each other and like basically your thumbs are pointing at your head and you're pressing the weight up over your head well that's how we're telling these kids get the weight up in that neutral grip position and then once the weight's up rotate your hand externally rotate your hand so to your point that you're locking that shoulder into the shoulder capsule then that's the safe point and then the other stupid thing i see is when they put it down they'll put it down the wrong way sure I, i think those are the two most dangerous parts picking it up and putting it down so we're telling them rotate the dumbbell back in and then put it down in a neutral grip military press fashion so you don't kill yourself. And not to make, turn this thing into a total overhead squat uh, tutorial. But the other thing that I like, and it's you're talking about the cylinder, is that we usually say to keep your bicep by your ear. This way, if your arm is going too far behind your head or too far in front of your head and your bicep leaves your ear, that's when you're going to have problems and that's when you're going to destabilize and potentially flip over. Right. I'm going to ask you one more question on the overhead squat. Uh, are you sure. a barbell or a dumbbell guy? I, I do both. And just just because I, I feel like I need to say this to people that are listening, one of the craziest overhead squats I've ever done was with a barbell, but they were chaos overhead squats. <laughs> so I, I'll never forget. I walk into uh, 
into the gym one one morning. It's like five thirty in the morning, and I'm walking down the steps because the the area where we trained was downstairs. It was actually in the basement. Um, and I'm walking in, and all of a sudden I see a guy with a with a barbell and forty five pounds just on one side. So the other side is nothing's on it, and he has forty five pounds over his head. Uh, forty five pounds on one side, and the barbell press over his head. And so the person that's in the gym, they're like, man, you forgot to put weight on the other side. <laughs> and, um, and then I see him squatting it. And those are what we call chaos overhead barbell squat. Um, and, and to me, though, I just had to get that in this podcast. So I, cause those are the sickest things I've ever seen us do. And those are like the, the that's like the, the pride of advanced training when people see us do that crazy stuff. And you're like, yeah, we do this. For, we do this for fun and to get stronger and no one else does this. That, that to me, that's like the, the, my favorite part about advanced training. But to go back to your question about barbell versus dumbbell, I like dumbbell better um, because I'm able to um, switch arms and, and really target certain areas of your body. Like when you put your right arm up, it, it makes you stabilize a different area than when you put your left arm up and so on and so forth. So I think it's a little bit more advanced to use dumbbells. And I, I, at least from a training perspective at our high school, I'm a bigger fan of the dumbbells just because we don't have enough squat racks to get those kids in and i also i feel like if i'm gonna a kid's gonna topple over he'll just drop the dumbbell versus dropping a barbell so it's a to me it's the safer of the two means in my opinion yes and you talk about those chaos overhead squats uh i believe that in our advanced training documentary that the great steve armado made and in his interview with joe sarno he said that was his least favorite movement was like a chaos reverse overhead lunge with a, with a barbell so you, you do not stand alone in that. And, and for guys who are listening that are football players, we do that because there are chaotic situations on a football field. Everything's not going to be perfect. So we're trying to unbalance the weight. We're trying to add chaos into the movement to get a closer connection to what's happening on the field. All right. We're going to segue into uh, a little bit more. Uh, let me ask you this about your college career or even your high school career. So you were a two-sport athlete. Did you, you were a football player and a baseball player, and I asked Steve Armato the same question. Did you feel like you were a football player impersonating a baseball player or vice versa or, or neither? You were just both. Um, so I would say in the beginning of my high school career, so I would say from my freshman year to my junior year, um, I would say I was more of a baseball player. And the reason why is because I didn't contribute as much on the football field. So – I didn't start from my freshman and my junior year in, in football. Um, when my senior year came, I, I became a starting player on defense for, for football, and that's when I became more of a football player. I, I like football more, but I was always better at baseball. I was always uh, the best player, one of the best players on my team in baseball. I was a captain of, of both my high school and my college baseball teams. Um, but I, I was definitely once that senior year hit and I was contributing a lot more and I was on special teams and starting on defense, I was definitely a football player first. Um, it was just a life change for me because I was always a baseball player my whole life. And then all of a sudden I kind of got, a, I got a good sense of what football is and, and playing football and starting is that that's when I became a real football player and all, and all my friends were football players and I train like a football player and I act like a football player. And then I realized at that point, you know, I'm a football player first and baseball is just something I, I'm good at. So I continue to do it. So is that why you're coaching football instead uh, of coaching baseball? A hundred percent. A hundred percent. Like I said, baseball was just something I was great good at. Um, I enjoyed the sport. 
Um, but I love, I love football. I, I, I don't have the same love for baseball that I do for football. So little known fact, I too was a two sport athlete in high school. I was almost going to be a two sport athlete in college, but I just legitimately hated baseball. I couldn't stand it. Uh, what, and I don't even know how I would have done it, to be honest. I, I don't know how it would have been possible for me personally to play baseball in the spring, play football in the fall, and get enough weightlifting and conditioning in just to compete. I, I knew I, I definitely wouldn't have been able to keep up. How did you do it? So uh, it's not an ideal circumstance for an athlete. I mean, <clears throat> you see some of these guys now, like the D1 college athletes, that's this freak of nature that could do – play two sports, they probably could play 10 sports and be the best at all 10. Um, but when you're, when you're a run-of-the-mill guy and you're not an extreme athlete and you're not talent-gifted, talent you really should focus on one sport and, and, be, and find a sport that you love and really get good at that sport. Because my biggest issue was uh, for football, it was tough to train during uh, baseball season because you had your arm was sore and your legs were sore and um, you train, you could train, but you weren't, you were also playing a sport. So you were sore and you're training through soreness. is not ideal. As, as you could tell people, it's not, it's not great to be sore if you work out. So if you're sore from playing a sport, it's, you, you're still sore when you're working out, you're not doing your optimal weight and you're not, uh, your body's not as focused uh, at training as it is with the sport. So that, that was the tough part for football. The tough part for baseball is when you go into football season and you don't see a, a live pitch for five, six months. Um, and then you go up to see a live pitch. There's a huge curve to get back into a swing of things, which could take two to three, four months. And by that time, two, three, four months into a baseball season, you're already like halfway through your season. So it makes it extremely difficult to play both. I, I don't recommend it if you want to be excel at one sport. You know, what was <laughs> tough for me was throwing, is that I stopped throwing during football season, and then I get back on the field, and I know we were talking about uh... – uh, Trunzo being the Chuck Knobloch of sliders. Well, I, I'd feel that way with the baseball. Like I could not accurately throw a baseball for, I'd say, almost a couple of weeks because my arm was just shot and it hadn't done that motion in six months. I mean, how did you feel about that? So, so that's funny you say that. I actually had every year I would go into baseball season, I couldn't throw. And they almost cut me from my college team because I got onto the field and I go to throw a baseball and I can't even throw 10 yards. I'm throwing it over his head. I'm shorting it. Um, then I'm throwing it like, uh, like a five-year-old would be throwing a ball and, and, and people, were, they were looking at me like this, did this kid ever play baseball before. And I'm sitting there and I'm like, I know I could throw the ball. I just need a few months, but it's embarrassing, you know? <clears throat> but after that first year, um, I finally got through it. Everyone knew, like, it was like a joke. It was like, oh, I can't throw for like two months. Uh, uh, because towards the, I didn't get caught thankfully because I was fast enough to be a, a, a pinch runner. So they were like, all right, you'll be on the team to pinch run. So I was like, all right, I'm, I didn't lose my spot on the team. That would have been embarrassing. Um, uh, but after that, I, I wound up becoming a player. And I, then we made the playoffs, and I made the playoff roster, which is a, a shorter roster. So it was like half the team only makes it. And I made that. So I was like, I went from a guy that was going to get cut to making the, the shorter roster, which was kind of cool. Um, but, yeah, that was, that was the hardest thing was being able to throw uh, as well. Um, but I, I was an outfielder, so throwing was not to me. I, people put a lot of, too much emphasis emphasis on throwing for an outfielder. Uh, it's a very small part of the game. You know, you, you hit a lot more times than you try to throw someone out. You catch a ball more times than you try to throw someone out. So it wasn't a huge factor in my in my total game. 
And if you read Moneyball, uh, defense is a very, very small factor in the – I was going to say the great game of baseball, but I really don't like it. So in the game of baseball, it's really all about just getting on base and uh, scoring runs. So to all yeah. you baseball coaches who had issues with me and Pete Amorosi, I'm not even yeah. going to say it. I'm not even yeah. going to say it. I, and I think, too, I think something that I learned in the court, after high school and after I stopped playing baseball in college was if you keep throwing while you're lifting, you're okay. It's when you stop throwing. It's the same thing with basketball. If you're lifting and shooting baskets, you're going to keep that movement pattern. But I just never threw a baseball, especially if you're living in the Northeast and you're playing football. It's really hard to get time or weather to go out and throw a ball or even go into a, a facility to do it because you just don't have the time to do it because you're in a, a football season. So I think had I just kept throwing, I would have been in a better spot. But it just seems very impractical. And I was a, a middle linebacker, so – I felt like I needed size. I was already grossly undersized, so I didn't have any opportunity to stay out of the weight room at all. I couldn't. I just didn't have that luxury. Uh, so something else I wanted to ask you. So I, I've known you since 2010. What have you seen change in me with respect to how I train the advanced training guys to how we're training the guys now at Peters? Um, I think that a lot of uh, – in your earlier years, you were kind of torn between the, tr- the training program we're doing now, which is of extremely analytical, very focused on pre- pre-injury stuff and, um, and progressive weight, uh, pro- progressive strength, I should say. But you were torn between that and in the beginning, you kind of wanted to throw in some ridiculously hard stuff. Um, with that said, like you wanted, you wanted people to burn out in the gym to get that sensation that you had a great workout. At least that's how it seems from outside in. I remember you did this thing called Five Minutes of Pain. I think someone alluded to it in a previous podcast. And I remember in the weight room doing uh, the Five Minutes of Pain was a squat to um, chest supported row. <laughs> yeah, I remember that. And you would never, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, you would never put that in a program now. No, no way. Um, I, I remember throwing up from it because it was so, it, we, we were running back and forth from a squat rack to a chest supporter row that when I was doing the chest supporter row, any like bad feeling in my head and my stomach was being literally pushed against my chest and coming up through my mouth, you know? Um, and, and we was, and we don't even squat. We don't even squat at Peter's now because you don't want to waste the movement. Meanwhile, you, that was like a CrossFit thing that you had going right. on, uh, where we were squatting in the extreme circumstances where we were all exhausted. So I, I don't know. I, I just think you were struggling at that time between making the workout really hard and getting that sensation that we're we're struggling through a workout, and then when we're done, we're extremely sweaty in that. And now you're you're really just hyper focused on injury prevention and progressive weight gain. So, and I, I I'm reflecting back as you're saying it, and the, the why behind what I did. And at the time, there was just a really sick group of guys in advanced training who were constantly looking for the next sickest thing. Like it was never good enough. No matter what we did, it was never good enough. Right, right, right. So I, I and to your point, I, I was like, all right, if we're going to get kids into this advanced training program, I got to throw something in here that is going to make them think this is the craziest stuff they'll ever do. And they should never go anywhere else. And it was, was I remember even uh, Steve Roman threw up from the leg press. I think a couple of guys threw up because they were doing uh, five minutes of pain with a leg press and something else, and they weren't, they couldn't squat for whatever reason. So they also vomited. Pretty stupid. We have it on YouTube if you want to watch it. I, I wouldn't recommend that type of a five minutes of pain. If we do do five minutes of pain now, it's really just upper body movements to really reduce that risk of injury. So, so what about with respect to football? 
Have you seen anything? You, now you've known me for a really long time. You coached with me a while ago. Uh, you took a break. Then you're coaching again with me. Have you seen my approach to the game of football change? Yeah, I, I think that your position now, you're, you're a head coach now. And when we coached uh, at a previous school, you were not the head coach. So your ability to make a bigger impact is, is much more. Um, you know, you get to influence this, the strategic initiatives of the team. Um what we're going to do on special teams, how we're going to approach the game, what the general logic is. So you didn't have that ability. Previously, you were just a defensive coordinator um, where you just focus on one thing, and that's defense. And I think your defensive philosophy is very similar now than it was before. Um, it's run like a man-man to the ball, pursuit to the football, make it very simple for the kids just to play football. Um, and that's that's just – if I had to explain it in three sentences, that would be it. But um, in terms of the full uh, – logic of of your game now um as a head coach when you threw in i i didn't know that you had you were on this wavelength when you threw in that we're never gonna kick off we're not gonna punt um we're gonna onside kick every single time i i was like wow this is great i was like we're we're now now we're i I was i was shocked and positive in a positive way that now you do you want to implement this crazy philosophy that everyone could see, and you're gonna put your head on this. Pretty much put your head on this fight because every parent's gonna come in after you, and and the league's gonna say you're nuts. And I, I loved it. I think it's great. I love to be different. So um, the fact that you just want to do onside kicks um, and, and no punts to me is, and I don't care if people are listening because it's no secret. Uh, <laughs> I think you agree with me. It's it's no secret, but people know this. Um, so let me like go ahead. Why did you <laughs> like it? You liked it before we even talked about it. Or did you need to be convinced into it, or you like you liked it right away? I, I like being different. I, 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 in general, I like having a different – look, if you do the same thing as every other team, you're going to need the better athletes. You're going to have to do it ten times better than everyone else. Uh, it goes back to even our offense with Coach Hench. And, and Coach Hench is a brilliant guy because he found something that no one wants to do. It's completely different. Um, offense is, is, uh, double tight with three running backs. And over the years, it changed from two wings to one wing. Um, but we basically run power football and there's 11 guys in the box running the ball. Um, and that's different. That, that kind of defines who we are. So when you came in and you said, we're only going to onside kick and we're not punting, um, you defined our special teams as different. So now when someone plays, plays us in football, they're saying they're special teams. We got to change everything for their special teams because it's unique. It's different than every other team we're ever going to face. And to me, I, that's, that's amazing. It's something to hang your hat on. It's something for the team to take pride in. It's something different that, that we could all say, you know what, we're part of this program. This is what we, what we do. And you stop us first. And I, I don't care if it's different. I don't care if it's unconventional. This is us. So that, to me, that's, that's the best part. And, and you talked about uh, being different, and I'll go back to the fact that I am not a risk taker at all, and I hate risks. I, I take very few risks in my life. Maybe the overhead squad might be the biggest one. With special teams, with the onside kick, with not punting, while it to the outside world seems crazy, it's actually the most sane thing you could possibly do sure. based on the data, uh, based on the outcomes. The hardest part, as you said, is just trying to convince people – that it's the right thing to do. I don't think you'll ever do it to the people outside of our inner circle, but the people in our circle, they have to be on board with it or they, they just can't coach with us. You, we can't be in a game where a guy's wishing that we would have kicked off deep and we really, it, you know, it's just kind of putting that bug in your ear. You're not, everybody's not on the same page and that philosophy's hurt. That's why I love that guys like you and coach Roman are really on board with this. So 
segueing over to this, what, what made you, you are now the special teams coordinator of the team. What made you want to do it? Um, so I was a special teams player my whole life. Uh, I take a lot of pride in special teams, whereas a lot of guys saw it as a time, like a lot of starters that I played with were like, ah, I'm on kickoff this week. This sucks. You know, I don't want to do it. And I'm like, what what are you talking about? It's to me, special teams is fun. You're running down a full field. It's open field. Um, your assignment is to tackle someone or to block the person in front of you. It's something different than what you're normally doing. Like as a corner, I'm covering someone and making sure that I protect an outside run. Uh, but special teams was something different. It was fun to me. I, I don't know why. I, I found it. I found it as fun. Do you uh, think a high school kid? What do you think their perception is of special teams? I think it's mixed. I think some guys love it and some guys hate it. And that's the same as when I played. Uh, there's there's some guys that are that are generally the starters that have been starters their whole life. They don't want to get. They don't want to touch special teams for whatever reason. And that's a generalization. There's obviously some people that are that don't fit that criteria. Um, but the, the guys that are kind of like dwindling between starter and or just became a starter or have to fight for to be a starter, those are the guys I think that love special teams because they're getting themselves on the field more and they're getting more reps. And what would you tell, uh, like, if you had to convince a kid, a high school kid, what would you tell them to make them want to be on special teams? I mean, if you, one of my best plays on my highlight film is from special teams. Um, the special teams is another opportunity on the field, another opportunity to make a huge play. Um, uh, another chance for you to, to, to prove yourself to a coach. Uh, another chance for you to, to learn something on the field, to, to, get, to get in someone's head or to, or to play someone out. It's, just, it's another opportunity on the field. What, what benefit are you serving yourself on the bench? So, <clears throat> but like I said, my, one of my best plays on my highlight film is a special teams play, and it's, it's, just a, it's a pursuit play. And I wouldn't have had that opportunity if I was just sitting on the bench. So, uh, to me, more opportunity on the field is better. Yeah, we have a bunch of kids that are making their highlight films now for college. And a lot of them, very early on, have blocking an extra point, which I love. I'm like, put that first or second because that shows your will. That shows your technique. That shows your get off. I love showing that to kids. The other, my other coaching point for them is when you go to college, unless you are a dude – your first couple of years, you're going to be a special teamer. That college coach wants to make sure that you can do these things. This is a great opportunity right now to showcase that you can do it and get on the field year one. Yeah, and I think if, you, if you're someone that game that hustles on special teams and you're a guy that com- fully commits to special teams and you're running, that's, what co- that's, a, coach, that's a coachable player. Uh, I would love to see a guy that's going crazy on special teams. What is he going to do for you on defense or offense? Um, and this says a lot about your character. Uh, if you if you're really really going hard on special teams, and that's something that a coach wants to see. So to your point, yeah, I mean, putting a, if, uh, within your first few plays on your on your highlight tape could really impact the coach's decision on you and say, hey, this guy is a, this guy, you know, breaks his butt on special teams and he really fights hard. He might be someone that we want in our program. So I want to talk about uh, I don't know. Let's start, you mentioned Coach Hench. There's two things I want to talk about. I'm going to start with the Coach Hench one first. Yep. So you've you've never been an offensive player. You've never coached on the same side of the ball as him, but I could clearly hear from conversations with you, even outside of this, that he's made a major impact on your life. So, so what is the impact and why? So Coach Hench is, is a very uh, – he's a very brilliant guy when it comes to football. And it's not because he's, he's got all these crazy X's and O's. And, and don't get me wrong, his X's and O's work and, and they're, they're brilliant in their own way. But it's not like he has these crazy motion schemes where 
uh, or or formation shifts where he he's got something that no one else has. Coach Hench is brilliant because he basically takes a simple concept, he makes it for his players to understand, and he runs it, and he has the patience to run it every single play if it's working. Um, with that being said, um, and, and like I said before, I alluded to before, we run our offenses, 11 people in the box and running power down your throat. A lot of coaches don't have the patience. They don't have the, the fortitude to go through with that every single play. They have it in a package sometimes, or they run on goal line. Coach Hens has uh, so much patience and so much respect for what he's doing that he doesn't get away from it. The, the scoreboard doesn't really matter the, to him. It, he's staying with that offense. Um, that's just a little bit of logic of, of, of his coaching style. The number one thing I like about how Coach Hens coaches is that he has a, a great ability to remove everything that doesn't matter from his coaching. So, yeah. like, so like if a kid's wearing, like, red socks – or, um, or or he has long hair. Like, Coach Hedge doesn't care. Like, he doesn't even look at that stuff. He just wants to see how you run the ball, how you block, uh, how you command the offense, uh, how you can throw, how you can catch. That's all he looks at. And he uh, – some co- sometimes coaches are looking at other things. Oh, if I like this kid, if he, he's a good guy. Coach Hedge is literally just looking about, are you a football guy? Can you play football? It, it's amazing how he could do that. And that's it, – it's something I envy because I wish I could do the same thing. It's, it's, he also, he's been accused many times by players of not even knowing their names, which is probably true. I think you're, you're, you're right that he just is looking at, can this kid block? Does this kid have will? Okay. The kid's name is almost irrelevant. Right. And to me, that's, that's amazing because he looks at numbers. He's looking at you on the football field and we don't have names on the back of our jersey. So he doesn't get to see it there. So he just literally takes everything else out that doesn't matter. And he just follows what you could do on the football field, which is, to me is great. I, I find myself going into the offensive meetings just to watch him coach. And, and I'm not an offensive guy by any means, and I'm not looking to coach up offensive guys. I just want to learn or, or just, I would say, more admire his coaching skills and, and how he coaches the game. It's just something really to see. If, if anyone has an opportunity to do it, you know, if they're close to the program or they know us and, and they want to hang out, go, go watch Coach Hench pra- uh, you know, run a practice or run a film session. It's, it's really something to see. It's, it's really amazing. So you said something that I thought was profound once. You said that he hates to lose more than he likes to win. Can <laughs> yeah. you expand on that? Yes. Yeah, so he, he even said it himself. He's like, I don't even enjoy winning. I just hate losing. So, like, <laughs> so to me, I'm like, oh, that, well, that kind of you know, stinks. But that, that's how much the guy hates losing. He, he expects to win. He, um, he, he wants to win. He, he, does, he just hates losing. So if he doesn't lose to him, it's a win. Like, you know, so it's the other way around where I like to win. I enjoy winning. I enjoy when we put something together and it works and we win. He's just like, I just hate losing. I just don't want to lose. So everything he does is because he doesn't want to lose. Whereas a lot of other coaches are, we do a lot of this stuff because we want to win. I mean, obviously he wants to win, but he just hates losing more than anyone. Like more than you and me, probably. I, I, you know, I could take a loss pretty well compared to most people. I, I don't harp on a loss that much. I try to get right into the next next play and next game and, and move forward, he, he hates losing. So it, that's a great person to be around. It, it makes it a hurt game. It's a hurt game. They, call, they say that about MMA every now and again. It's a hurt game because even if you win, you walk out with bruises. It, it's where you, you don't even get that satisfaction when you win. It's just that you're, you're chasing or you're running away from losing so much. So yep. yeah, I, I could see what you're saying. I could see how he feels it. Uh, and for me – that this guy's impacted everything I do. He's impacted the way I work, the way I coach. Just really, like you said, strip away everything that doesn't matter. I love when he says, uh, "If this isn't going to help us, 
win a football game, why are we doing it? Yep. This isn't going to help me run 24 power better. Why am I doing it? And I, I, I've taken that into work. I've taken it into football, taken it into the weight room. It's really – if this doesn't make sense, why are we doing it? He, he reminds me of Tim Ferriss. I'm sure he knows, doesn't even care who Tim Ferriss is, <laughs> but he has that same sort of methodology in his head. And it, it, because of the way he runs the offense, it also helps us have these really short, short practices. Yeah, I don't think there's another coach that could run the offense that we're running besides him because he he just loves doing doing that offense and he has so much uh, he has so much respect for that offense that he's running and he, that's all he wants to do is perfect that that craft and and really focus on on that one thing and really run it well and not many coaches could do that they'll give up on it early or they'll go to something else it's it, I, I love it I love be, I love being a, a defensive coach watching the offense play it's great. What's also great is that he doesn't get bored. So yeah. if you're an offensive coach that gets bored, you want to throw in more packages or more plays. Like he, like you said, he loves that play. He's kind of he's he's like Vince Lombardi, who talked for six hours about the power sweep. Coach Hench can talk for six days, six days about twenty four power. Sure, and, yeah. And he gets. I, I like that he gets really upset when other people just throw it in as a package. Because there are so many intricacies to it that you couldn't get if you just ran – if you ran 17 different plays or formations. I'm not going to get into them. This is where we start to get into insider secrets. But the man is obsessed with this offense. I think he's the best in the business at this offense. And it's because of – he just thinks it's an art yeah. form. Yeah, he gets insulted when people uh, try to duplicate his offense because he basically sees it as like, oh, this is throwing in as a wrinkle. And he's saying to them, this is something you need to run every single day and get amazing at to run it successfully. And people are just trying to throw it in as a small little package where they're going to probably work on it for 10 minutes each practice, whereas he's working on it for camp. He's working on it for two hours each practice. So he gets insulted. I love it because it makes him want to want to run it down their throat even more. It's great. It's almost like a, a chef. You know, you, you throw, like you're, you're making this perfect steak, and they throw it out as like a filet mignon tip appetizer. Like, what? This is, right, this is right. the main course, man. Don't, don't yep. be messing around with this thing. Uh, exactly. All right. So we're going to – one last question to you based on your own personal high school football career. And we've, I've heard this conversation come up a bunch. And you've talked about, hey, I didn't start. I wasn't an impact player uh, maybe until you were later on in your career, maybe a senior. And there's a big game. Cease playing Farrell. They completely wiped them out. Well, the score was 35-7. to 7. But for some crazy reason, the, the, the sticking memory in your head is that seven points. Why is that? So, so the score, final score, 35-7. Great game. We beat Farrell at home. Um, everyone's excited. Uh, obviously, it's a huge rivalry. Uh, at that time, we're, we're the best team on Staten Island, in my opinion. Um, but the score was 35-7. We gave up seven points. And the reason why we gave up seven points is because of me. Um, what happened was they ran a fade for whatever reason. I don't know why. I don't know what I was going through my head. I'll never know. But just a run-of-the-mill fade, got beat deep on a fade. The kid just beat me deep and caught the ball and ran in for a touchdown. And uh, at that time, our logic to our, our corners was don't get beat deep, don't get beat deep, rally up on everything, don't let anything behind you. So I completely butchered my assignment. Completely. like It wasn't like I forced them far and wide. I completely – butchered my whole assignment and at that time during the game the coaches really wanted a shutout they really that was like the one thing they were chasing we haven't had a shutout in a long time at cnc history and to do it against foul would have been the most memorable thing and of course great i'm the guy that gets up the touchdown 
uh, on something that's so simple that wasn't even complicated. It wasn't a trick play. It was just a fade. So um, with that being said, anytime someone brings up that game, it's like, great, we beat Farrell. But in my head, I'm like, 35-7. Seven points is my fault. <laughs> so what, what was the score at the time? I think it was 28 nothing. So not a close game. Where, where was the ball in the field? Uh, probably like uh, they they were going in on their like forty or thirty five yard line around there. It was probably like a thirty to forty yard catch, um, but they weren't like close to scoring. It wasn't like they were ten yards out. You know, they, they, it was a lot of driving they needed to do. And we had a few. And the worst part is we had a few goal line stands there. Like we had a sick goal line stand where we stopped them on fourth and fourth and one on the goal line. Um, Piperaji made a sick play. Um, and meanwhile, I gave up. Like, after all that, we had this crazy stuff going on. I gave up, like, the easiest touchdown that the kid – it was just a pitch, pitch, you know, pitch and catch. And and everyone's just looking at me like, are you serious? Like, it's this whole game. So, uh, it is what it is at this point. It's It taught me a lot, but it's kind of funny still. It kind of still eats anything. So, what what did it teach you? How did it help you? Oh, well, on the football field, it's – yeah, I never gave up a deep touchdown again. That's through college and, and high school level. So I, I never – I needed that one um, that one time to say, wow, this is what really could happen for me to understand the you know, disbenefit of not doing my assignment so that I was always able to run my correct assignment after that. that and just about me as a player, that's the only reason why I got in the field is because I knew my assignment every single play and I did my assignment every single play. And I was a, a guy that you could rely on to, to be where they needed to be. Not because my talent was better than anyone, because it wasn't, but it was more so my assignment. So for me to give up something like that was like, wow, like that. if I'm doing that, I can't be on the field because I'm not talented enough to be on the field if I'm blowing my assignment. So I, from there, I never gave up a deep touchdown like that again. I never let someone behind me on the field like that again. Um, so. so I'm going to make a point, and then I got to ask you another question. So the point is – it's it's amazing to me that a guy like you says that you don't have talent. Like I've I've coached you for a long time. You're fast, you're strong, you're you're very well balanced. I think you're an extremely talented guy, but I just I love that mindset and I'm going to go back to the show that I watched uh called In Search of Greatness. Jerry Rice, Wayne Gretzky, like some of the greatest athletes ever always didn't feel like they were good enough. They always didn't feel like they had that talent. And I think that's make, what makes you what you are is because you were a guy with talent who trained and felt like he didn't have talent. Leading me into my next part of this question, and, and maybe I'll take a step back for the football part. Are you seeing kids have that same, oh my God, it's about the team? Because it seems like to me with this 35-7, you're like, man, I let, I let the team down. We should have shut them out. Not, oh, my God, I got embarrassed or anything like that. It was really about the team. Are you seeing kids feel that way, or is it in this me generation, has that changed? Uh, I still think it's a me generation now. I don't want to say that to generalize anyone because there are kids out there that play for the team. Um, but I still think that when I was playing and, – and everyone's going to say this. When they were playing, this was the right way to do it. We were about this. It was great. And everyone's going to say that about when they played. But I felt that it used to be more about the team. We took pride in the team numbers. We took pride in, in, in our defense. Like when I talk to my friends, I say that we had the best defense he ever had. I don't say uh, we had the best uh, safety or the best uh, defensive end. We say that we had the best defense. And that's 11 guys playing together um, to, to achieve a common goal. I, I don't see it as much today. I think more people are focused on where they're going to college. 
um, what their personal statistics are, uh, their highlight videos. Um, uh, and I think more people will focus on them, unfortunately. But with that being said, there are still guys that have that team mentality. And those are the guys that really, um, that you really are privileged to coach. And it's like, a, it's really nice to coach them because they buy into the right stuff. And, and a quick plug for our program. It's, we, we got that right now with the, the kids that we have, sure. uh, the coaches that we have, just constantly reiterating that. It's really become this team-first approach. Even if a kid uh, gets sick, he'll miss a lift. He'll say, hey, coach, sorry, I know I let the team down. I'm like, man, we got yeah. it. Like, we, we, we're getting that back. We're getting we're inst- that old-school method back. We're instilling it in the kids, and, and they're really buying into it, which is really nice. And, and I wish that other programs and, and the logic out there was more like that, but it's just not. But we're doing our best that we can to make the team first and – um, to put the team before the individual, which is which is a great thing. All right, so we we've covered team. Now we're going to get into you. So you're uh, you finished your college career. You're a successful guy outside in the business world. You are a high school football coach. Why are you still in advanced training? Is this answering some question in your life that you need answered? So I. I to put it this way, I, I always had this feeling, and I always get proven wrong. You're going to laugh when I tell you that. I think that I could train on my own and be as successful if I train with others. I always have this, like, I don't know, like, over time, I'm like, I could do this on my own, and then it never works, right? So, so one, of, <laughs> one, of your, one of your biggest things is that when you train with other people, you train 10 times. I don't know what's the, the right way to say it is, but you're, you're, you're getting more, you're more productive, and you're going to get more out of training with the group than you are with yourself, and that's, not, that's a no-brainer. Um, I love training with advanced training because of the guys that are there. We have a great group. Um, I like going, you know, I, I'll look at my phone when I'm at dinner with my fiance, let's just look at the advanced training chat and I get yelled at, but I want to see what's going on. Cause I want to know, I want to know what, what, uh, Alvarino just challenged Trunzo in or what, what Sarno's, you know, what, what the challenges to Sarno and, and how, it, you know, it, it's, it's just a lot of fun. But in terms of the actual on the field stuff, I, I just love being, I, I like being different. I like being able to know that when I walk into work at, at eight in the morning or nine in the morning, or if I go to a business meeting that I have on Wednesdays at seven in the morning that I did a workout already and that people are complaining about getting up and, and, and not sleeping. And I'm like, you gotta be kidding me. I was up, I was up at four forty in the morning running at Bloomingdale at five o'clock and they look at me like, like, what is wrong with you? I, I love that. I'm like, I love being different like that. And, and I wouldn't me. even say running. I'd say uh, pushing a prowler, right, pulling right, right. a sled, almost throwing up in the woods playing yeah. mind games with Joe Tronzo. Well, try explaining what we do at Bloomingdale park. Like this, this should be a game that we play. Like what's your elevator pitch on what we do at Bloomingdale park um, <laughs> to someone, to someone that has no idea of what we do at all. Like to the, to I'll call him a lay person. Like, I think we should try this. What's your 20 second elevator pitch to explain what we do. I, I, I haven't figured out how to do it. So if someone knows how to do it, please tell me because I, I explain to people and I can't, I can't figure out the right way to explain it. It doesn't get the point across. Uh, so it's pretty funny that you say that. So we're, we're knee deep into the challenge. You just had an interesting challenge yesterday. Uh, the overtime event against Joe Trunzo in a Prowler shuttle. And it was after you had just won a challenge on a 30-yard single leg slider. So you were pretty gassed from that. And then you had to go twice in this overtime uh, this, so you guys did a prowler shuttle. You both hit 23.3 seconds. Then you did it again, and you lost by, I'd say, a little bit under a second. 
my question to you is if this was a tag team uh, event and you had to pick a tag team partner all year, you could pick anybody all time. Who's your partner? Uh, any, any event or anything involved in advanced training, I pick Ted Cole Hesse. Always. Uh, the kid's just a, a freak. He's a, he's a gamer. He's the guy that you want. He's a competitor above all things. He, he probably, he's probably one of the guys that might hate losing more than Coach Hench. <laughs> that <laughs> like is true. He, like, like that, that's the same. Maybe not more, but just as much. You know, uh, he's, that, he's that guy. It, anything I do, if I had to pick a guy next to me to do it, it, it would be Ted. Uh, the guy's a freak of nature. Um, and he hates losing. So, and, and not only that, he'll, he'll pump you up and he'll get in your own face and make you a better person. By, by rooting you on and saying, let's go and move your ass, that, that, uh, that's, that's the guy you want on your, on your side. Who do you hate to lose to the most in event? Uh, I don't care. I, to, to me, like, see, I, I, this stuff doesn't bother me. I don't have a person like a nemesis or someone that I always lose to, like, like Trunzo's nemesis from six years ago is Ted Colhesse. I, I don't have that. I, I, I just don't want to lose. You know, I want to be the best I can be. Um, and when you're when you're competing, I, I don't I really don't see that. I, the next guy up, I'm versing this guy. Let's figure out how to beat him. And it doesn't matter who it is. It's not like I have someone that I, like I hate losing this guy. I don't have that. So what do you think? And you don't have to give this away if, you, if it's going to give inside information. But sure. uh, what do you think that people think is your biggest strength, but it may actually be your biggest weakness? So I, I don't care. I mean, this might hurt me, but it's this is my whole life of what people think I'm good at. So. Everyone has this weird notion that I'm a fast guy. Um, so <laughs> if you would have put me on, a, on a, and I swear to you, if you put everyone at advanced training and you said, let's run 30-yard sprint and see who finishes first, I'm going to be towards the bottom, if not less. I guarantee you. And everyone thinks that I'm fast. I think it's just the way I run or my, my size. I'm not that fast. I'm more quick than I am fast. So, like, that's what's got me uh, bought in the, in the football field, like, I have good uh, good feet in terms of moving laterally and, and being able to backpedal and stuff like that. But I am not – in a straight sprint, I am not fast. So if you did anything with a sprint, um, and this might give a lot away, which at this point I think I'm very close to being out of the challenge pool for this year, um, I'm not that fast. So I think that you think I'm fast. So uh, I <laughs> everyone do. does. Everyone does. That's, my coach thought I was a fast guy. He said I'm one of the fa- – one of my baseball coaches told me that I was one of the fastest guys on the team. And I'm like, you're sadly mistaken. Um, I I'm telling you, if you put me in a sprint with a bunch of guys, um, I'm going to be the slowest one. So, so why do you think that Trunzo thinks you're so big? <laughs> I, I think it's all relative. Um, I think maybe I, I don't. I don't want to speak for him, but I'm just you know, he'll he'll correct me if I'm wrong. I think maybe that he might see that I'm a little bit bigger than he is. Um, that he's more of an endurance guy. So once you see that. Um, maybe that's why he's like, he's, he's a little bit bigger than me. So he's big, I guess you would say. Whereas a guy like Trunzo looks at, I mean, not, not Trunzo, I'm sorry. A guy like Sarno looks at me. He's not saying I'm big. I'm more of a speed guy to, in Sarno's eyes. So it's all relative to who you're looking at. Like if Jimmy looked at me, he might say, oh, Pete's bigger than me or he's, he's strong, Pete's strong. But if, if Goldman's looking at me, he's not going to say that I'm, I'm big or strong. He's going to say he's more of a speed guy. Um, but I, I, I think that I'm in that middle range. So I think I'm more in the balanced area. I'm not just a speed guy, and I'm definitely not just a strength guy. I'm more in the middle. Um, I can compete both ways. I could go either way. So that's maybe that's why uh, Trundle feels that way. So when you think of success at advanced training, who comes to your mind and why? 
I mean, I really think that one of the 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 big success stories is uh, Jimmy Uske. Um and the reason being is he's one of the only guys that went through advanced training for the amount of time that he has um, without playing a sport. And he just kind of did it to prove to himself that he could. I mean, we had that, that breakfast that one day where he said, uh, you know, I really do this to prove to myself that I can compete with these guys. And to me, that was awesome because he has no reason to be training with athletes. There's no reason for, aside from him liking to do it, but he never had a reason. I think he came into the program because of Frank Torres and brought him along. And now Jimmy's a staple in the program and the kid never played uh, football, um, I think he golfs. He's probably, he's a great golfer, from what I understand. Um, but he's not. He's not. He doesn't need this training to be an athlete. I mean, we don't need it anymore either. But we used to need it. Um, so, and not to mention, he comes from the furthest part away on Staten Island. He's about thirty minute drive from where we are. So, I think that the kid like that to be extremely relevant in the program, and not even have a a, a background in weight training and athleticism, uh, to me, that's incredible. How big would you say he is? In the program? No, I mean uh, height and weight. Oh, I, what, five eight, uh, one sixty five. One, I, I don't know. I, I, I'm not good at guessing that, but he's not a big guy. Yeah, five six, maybe one, probably around one fifty, one fifty five. If I had to guess where he's at right now. So I was a little more so generous s- than you. <laughs> <laughs> Small guy, uh, 2015 challenge champ, went fifteen and four, finished it off by beating Joe Sarno, who's obviously. He wrapped it up by doing chain dips. He put 45 pounds around his waist, knocked out 39 reps, took the belt home. I, I know he wears that as a, as a badge of honor. And uh, you talked about him not playing football. I've actually got to see some great film clips of him recently playing flag football. Nice. I mean, and uh, I know flag football is not tackle football, whatever, but I've seen him really scooting around the field. He looks like uh, Julian Edelman. And uh, I just hope that being around you guys, being in this program, has really helped him take that game to a, a different level. Because I, I think you're right. I don't think he played much of this this type of an organized sport of like football back in the day. It's weird. It's crazy that he was friends with a guy like Torres because Jimmy's a very cerebral guy, deep thinker, and Torres uh, is also a deep thinker, but not nearly as quiet, a lot more uh, in your face. Yeah. A lot more in your face. They're like oil and vinegar. I don't know how they mix. <laughs> so uh, it, when you're thinking of advanced training, what's the first thing that pops into your head? First word. Uncommon. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, this, this, this to go back to the story about me walking downstairs and seeing a guy with a 45-pound uh, plate on one side of a barbell over his head. So it's like, like who does this stuff, you know? Uh, and I love being a part of that. I love being a part of something that's different and trying to explain it to people and not finding out. It, it, people don't even know what we're doing exists. Like the, people don't even know what a prowler is. People don't even know what. what obviously, if you're in the in the in that field, you do. But to the layperson, we're completely uncommon. Um, and I love it. I love every every minute of it. Uh, and would you say uh, uncommon workouts, uncommon people, uncommon mindset? Every, what is it? everything? everything there's none of that and it's i think and maybe i'm biased obviously because i'm part of it. i think that we're in the league group in terms of of who we are as people um i think we're in the league group of what we do at workouts um and the reason being is the people that we're with are very strong minded individuals all in a unique way but for someone to be consistently coming to workouts at at five in the morning or five twenty in the or five fifteen in the morning rather um 
consistently and giving their effort and being truly invested into it. A lot of people think we're crazy for working out at that time, never mind with the actual workouts that we're doing. So in that sense, we're elite people. And then the workouts that we're doing, um, it's just, it's just chaos. It's crazy stuff that we're doing that we're moving, we're using moving sliders and, and, to take a step back, we're going to invest in this thing. We're moving, use, we're using moving sliders um, under our feet and making ourselves go from point A to point B with moving sliders to make ourselves stronger. Like what person? Like the, you think the guys that <laughs> like do you think the guys that make the moving sliders even know that this exists? I, I don't know. I don't know. Um, like the, the manufacturers of moving sliders, they, they, I would love to send them a video and they'd be shocked. So. <laughs> It, the, the, the reason why this is an elite program is because we're doing things that are so different that no one even comes close to, to even getting there without being with us. And I, I was thinking about what you said about the, the type of person. I don't think it's any secret that the people that are in this group or have been in this group and consistently stated it are successful outside of the group. Oh. I think it takes a certain breed of person to, like you said, get up at 4.30, train in five-degree weather, do this crazy stuff, be ultra-competitive – it doesn't just end when you walk off the field. That's who you are as a person. I, I mean, I, I know when you go to work or when I go to work, like anything you do for the rest of the day is, is easy because you've done this hard, ridiculous, insane thing. And, and you just touched on the point about the cold. Yes, we, we go out in January, in February, when it's literally 10 degrees outside, 15 degrees, and we're doing this stuff with seven layers on and gloves and, and hats on. And I love when I get into work and it's like three, like 12 o'clock and someone comes in at 12 o'clock and they're like, Oh, it's freezing outside. I'm like, yeah, I know. I was outside at five in the morning. It was much colder then. And they're like, they look at me like I have 10 heads and they're like, what do you mean you were outside at five in the morning working out? Like what's wrong with you? Um, but it, it makes life so much easier when you put yourself through such a hard thing so early in the day. And it, it, it takes a special caliber of person to put themselves through that. I, I also, you know, I had the luxury of training you guys forever. So I've watched you grow from high school kids into men. And uh, it's nice to see how this group is building each other. Whereas you're super competitive, there is very little, if any, putting down on each other. And if it is, it usually leads to greater things. But I, I think it's back to Tim Ferriss's quote of you are the average of the five people you hang out with the most. Being around you guys, it's made me better. And being around each other, I can clearly say is is making you guys better, like beyond the shadow of a doubt. Yeah, we got a group right now that there's no, there's very, when I say there's no tension, I mean like yeah, we we kind of compete with each other and and say things about each other, but there's no real tension. Like if you would say like we're all gonna go out to to dinner one night or breakfast or whatever, everyone would be there and everyone would have a smile on their face and we all want to be there. There's no one that despises someone else in the group right now as long as as much as i know so we're we're more in it to build each other up than to to hate the other person um we all want to see each other get better like every every time someone wins we say great job like you know nice challenge like dude, that was awesome it's never like oh like you cheated like get out of here i mean once in a while but the, at the end of the day we're happy when someone wins the belt or when someone else takes the belt over um we're happy for that guy because we're, we're all friends with each other and what's crazy is the insane amount of trash talking that goes on before that. And then as soon as the challenge is over, it's great job. Right. Like I'm always waiting for a fist fight and it's like, nope, it's a great job. Great job. No, we're not, we're not even close to, to, to fighting each other at this point. Uh, I mean, if you introduce Ryan Smith back in the group, that might change. <laughs> but, uh, but no, we're not there yet. And one thing that hit me is about three weeks ago, 
Uske looked like he was dogging the workout. I think he was legitimate. I don't think he's that type of guy, but it looked like he was because he was getting killed. And then he did great on a challenge with the same exact workout. And guys called him out. And since he was called out on that, he's been demolishing workouts. Like he was, we were, we were going through the sled and, you know, it's really like a pain in the butt after the sled's done to move the chain, move the bucket around. For those of you who don't know, we sit on a Home Depot bucket. We hold a legitimate chain in our hand and we pull the sled with weight on it. And when it's done, the sled ends up on top of the chain. It's a pain. You got to pull the chain out from the sled, run the chain over to the other side of the field, move the bucket over. And uh, guys will use that as their opportunity to do nothing or recover. And, you know, people were calling Uske out for a softer workout two weeks ago. And the last time we were doing it, he was running around like a fireman. And then he was doing the prowler at record-breaking speed. And I, I got to say, he's a competitive guy. I think you guys just calling him out on it took him to a different level. Yeah, I think, uh, it, was, I think it was like a few weeks ago where I think I started this trend where I said, I was like, Jim, you were doing these sliders so much slower during the workout. And then when we get to the challenge, you're like, you're like a fast, the fastest guy in the field. Um, <laughs> and then someone else jumped in. I think someone was like, yeah, he always does that or something like that. And it wasn't like we really got on him for it. I was mad I just lost. Um, so I took it out on Jimmy, which I should have been taking it out myself. But when you lose, you look for excuses. That's natural. Um, and then I think after that, he's just like, you know what? Uh, screw these guys. I'm going to I'm gonna show them that I, I really trained during the workout. So he went extra hard and, and, and set up the chains and pulled the chains out to prove to us that he doesn't dog it during the workouts. And, you know, in hindsight, looking at it now, he probably didn't dog the workout. I was just probably more upset that I, I lost and looked for an excuse right off the bat. So. So I know Trunzo is probably looking this up on the webpage right now. We document everything, and he's a historian. So this was on April 23rd, 2019. Pete and Jimmy did a 40-yard slider challenge, and Jimmy won with a 20.52 seconds, which is pretty really fast, by the way. Then what makes this very interesting is that Jimmy won again on his second challenge. So now we have two challenges in a day, and he won again. Having said that, He's the last person who's won two challenges in one day since that date. Ever since that date, no one has actually won two challenges in the same day. Yeah. And this is since we implemented the two challenge rule. And that's only happened actually uh, – yeah, I'd say actually not many people have done that. Only Joe Trunzo did it the first time, oldest man to win a cha- two challenges in one day on March 25th. But the only other person to do that was Jimmy Uske. Yeah, it's, it's not easy to do. I mean, it just happened to me to yesterday where I had a one-legged slider and then I had a prowler shuttle. And <laughs> this is after a long workout. So my leg, one-legged slider really takes that one leg that you have up and it really, uh, it, you know, it's, it's strenuous to keep that leg up. Um, and, and it's tough to get through. I, I mean, I did, I was lucky enough to do three challenges that day, but, <laughs> uh, <laughs> but it's to, to win two challenges is extremely, extremely hard because you're exhausted. You just gave you all your energy on the first one, um, to win that challenge. You're using a hundred percent of your energy energy that you have. And then all of a sudden now you're in a second challenge and you're exhausted. Whereas the second guy that's challenging you has just had about five minutes to rest. So he's a hundred percent recovered whereas you're just trying to you're maybe getting close to 80 percent maybe depending on how fast you recover um so it's extremely difficult so if someone to win two challenges in a day uh i tip my cap to you guys because it's not easy what do you think of uh albarino's challenge to trunzo 
for this upcoming week? I mean, I haven't. I don't think I've personally ever seen Alvarino compete in a challenge. Um, <laughs> I, I, when he when he put that out, I, I said, "This is great! Like, this is incredible." Um, it, it's very difficult. I think. I, correct me if I'm wrong. I think it's a hundred yard sprint to a fifty yard prowler push to a, a fifty yep. yard slider, right? Uh, to me, that's crazy because he, there's this no, there's like no regard to the the next challenge he's gonna have. But I kind of like that because he's just basically saying, you know what, I'm focusing on the first challenge. This is what I think it could be Trunzo in. To me, I I would never challenge Trunzo in that. But the challenge is already out there. Trunzo's an endurance guy. Uh, you don't you don't give an endurance guy an endurance challenge. Uh, it's just a, to me, it's a fool's errand to give him that. But like I said, I never seen Alberino. Uh, do a challenge. I know Alvarino. There, there's a good reason for that. There's a good reason for that. And Trunzo, I know you have the website up. So last night, uh, Alvarino told Trunzo, "If you're looking for statistics on me, there isn't. <laughs> there actually is. He's uh, he's one and one. So in good old 2014, Bobby Alvarino only competed in two challenges. Why I don't know. He beat Mario Mock in a single leg. I'm oh, sorry, in jump rope touches. He got 99 in 30 seconds, but then he lost to Ryan Smith in single leg touches. Uh, sorry, single leg jump rope for the longest amount of time. And Ryan Smith got two minutes and six seconds. So, Trunzo, that is the only historical information you have on Bobby Alvarino in a challenge. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's not much to go on in terms of, of how many times you can jump rope. And, and Alvarino is, is a guy that could fluctuate weight more than anyone I've seen in my life. He could go. He could lose twenty pounds and gain twenty pounds faster than anyone I've seen. So, you have to also realize what stage of of body size Alberino's in to kind of critique of what he could do. And right now, Alberino's in great shape. Um, yeah, he, he looks and he looks sick. So I I don't know what he could do. I'm very excited to see the challenge. In 2014, he did finish second to Ryan Smith in the Tough Man. He beat Sarno. So Sarno was ranked third with two minutes and 18 seconds, and Alvarino was second with two minutes and 14 seconds. Was that Tough Man the same as it, it was now? Yeah, I think it was. I got I to gotta check my – no, it was a little different. Yeah, it was, it was a little different. Okay. But, yeah, I, and, uh, it's crazy. Now, like, if you were to look right now, I think Sarno's top dog. Everyone's going to put him first to finish the Tough Man. And, like, it's, it's just crazy. And I know that um, uh, Trunzo alluded to this earlier. Uh, in his podcast, is how the progression that Sarno's made uh, from he was never the top dog. Uh, he wasn't always the top dog, I should say. Um, and he worked his way up. So, you know, Alberino finished in front of Sarno, and this is years back. I- I'm very excited to see this challenge between Alberino and Trunzo and to see where Alberino lies up. It's, it's going to be exciting. So I'm looking at the 2014 Tough Men. Yeah, it's, it is not the same exact form. It was actually a, a longer distances. So it was like a 50-yard farmer's walk. It was uh, – we had to do a sled pull into a sled drag without even sitting on a bucket. We changed it to make the weight heavier and the event shorter. Right. So, yeah, it is not the same format as it is now. <laughs> Which goes to uh, to what we said earlier about how you change as a coach of making the the craziness less of in terms of difficulty and longer movements and, and making it more short, condensed, and probably harder within the shorter period of time so that your form doesn't go completely out the window. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wrap this up with my own selfish quest- question that I've asked everybody so far. What is one life lesson you can give me on how to simplify or remove clutter? And this doesn't have to be about lifting. It could be about anything. 
I'll be honest with you. Uh, a lot of the stuff I do to remove clutter and be more efficient, it falls in line with stuff that you already do. So I'm trying to figure out, I've been trying to figure out what you, I think is the, the one thing I could teach you about. So I don't have this crazy philosophy about my cell phone like Tronzo does, or um, I, I think you follow this, correct me if I'm wrong, but the one thing that I try to tell people that I meet and, and I'll tell you now is, is simplify your life um, to not have to worry about things when you're not there. So I tell people this all the time when I'm not at work, I don't stress about work, not because I don't have a lot to do. I have plenty to do at work that most people would stress over, but I have a list at work and, and with priorities on the list that I know when I, work into, when I walk into work, I'm just going to look at that list and know exactly what I have to do. And when I'm not at work, I don't have to worry about what I have to do because it's on that list. So my mind isn't focused on what I need to do. So I guess my recommendation would be is the best way to not stress something where you're not there is to have a list and a game plan ready to go so that when you get there, there's no stress about what you need to remember what you need to do and what order you need to do it. It's already there for you. So you don't have to stress that when you're not there. Are you making that list before you leave? Like say it's a, I don't know, normal person works till four thirty, five o'clock. Is it the end of the day? You write that here's what I need to do tomorrow. Or is that something you write when you're in your house before you go to work? Uh, no, I try to finish it at work. So I try to stay at work. I'm in that environment. Uh, my mind is, is on work. I try to finish it there. And that I don't bring anything home with me from work. I mean, obviously, there's things I know I have to do that when I'm home. I don't want you to think I, I'm completely shut off when I'm home. But uh, the majority of my work, um, I, I leave it at work because um, I, I believe in a work-life balance and, and making sure that you have a, some kind of balance in your life. But I, I don't like to stress things that I don't have control over. So if you're not at work, you shouldn't be stressing work because you can't change it from home. Um, so make sure that you have a plan in place, especially when you're at work. For when the next day that you come in, you have a plan in place that you could walk in and know exactly what you have to do without stressing it from home. That's good. I like that. I like that a lot. I'll, I'm going to wrap this up with uh, something that you said to me the other day, and this wasn't about you. You said you learn a lot about somebody from listening to the podcast. I do think it's crazy that, at, first of all, there were things I learned about Trunzo, uh, this things I learned about Amato, and I feel like I spend more time with you than both of those guys, and I learned so much about you in the last – hour and 20 minutes that i haven't learned in the last 10 years that i've hung out with you so this was great it's yeah this is excellent i mean i hope we get to do it again in the future you know when you start wrapping around and doing the second time through but it is true i've learned a lot about different people because it's a great forum for us to be able to uh just talk and and have an open conversation with each other and and you don't know where it's going to go it's great i'm looking forward to a uh overhead lifting podcast really digging deep into that because even as we were talking there i had some other thoughts about other ways we made it even crazier than a chaos overhead squat so i'm smelling that in the future yeah i would i would love to do it and i, I would love to to get some ideas down and uh uh and and even you know go through some videos with you and and see what we can find all right pete this was awesome get me uh 20 onside kick recovers this year please <laughs> i'll do my best all right brother thank you thank you coach all right bye-bye